So welcome to the Hamilton Institute seminar program. It's a great pleasure today to introduce Bourne Shelter from the Freiburg uh, Tremor Group. Bjorn is an expert in the modeling and analysis of time series data. And today he's going to be talking about the work on tremor as it applies, in our case, to Parkinson's disease, but also touching on some other broader issues. I'll hand you over now to Bjorn. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you all for coming, and thanks, Peter, for inviting and having me here at this very nice place. I'm staying in the South Campus. It's really a beautiful place to stay. And I'm also proud to be allowed to talk about what we do as time series analysts in neurology. And when I prepared this talk, the title was Multivariate Time Series Analysis in Neurology, I recognized that I should have rephrased it and called it in tremor research because all the applications will be related to tremor. It's not always Parkinson's disease. It might also be different forms of tremor, different kinds of types of tremor. And why is tremor so important for us? Tremor is on the one hand a disease with a very severe impact for the patient suffering from tremor because there are different types of tremor. The famous or one of the most famous is the tremor in Parkinson's disease. And if you take a look at a Parkinson patient and if he's sitting, he's usually like this, so he can't uh, use his hand in the usual way as everybody of us could easily do. We could grab whatever we want. We could easily prepare the usual thing like drinking a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. This is partly impossible for uh, Parkinson patients. Other types of tremor, for instance the essential tremor has another drawback. If the uh, patient is relaxing then the, uh, there is, there's no trembling at all, or almost no trembling, but if he then starts to do something, if he wants to grab something or he wants to drink something, then the tremor starts and he can't grab. So this is another severe form of this tremor. Also tremor affects many people, so basically all of you but uh, you are all only suffering from, and suffering is not the correct word, but you're only suffering from physiological tremor, which means that if you measure the acceleration of your hand, it's never really uh, non-moving. It's always moving a little bit with a frequency of 8 to 12 hertz. And the reason why this is the case might be that it's easier to initiate a certain movement uh, when the hand is always moving a little bit than to do it when the hand is uh, completely uh, resting. And this is, of course, not infecting your life. You can easily live with it, uh, live with it and it's no problem at all. 25%, 20 to 25% have a more severe form of physiological tremor, which is then called uh, enhanced physiological tremor. There you can sometimes really see that the people are trembling, but this does also not uh, influence your life too much. So this is why it's still called physiological tremor. And then you have the pathological forms, like the one uh, I described, which has really a severe impact and influence millions of people uh, in the world. Uh, although there are so many people suffering from tremor, hardly anything is known about the mechanisms underlying tremor. So why people are trembling is basically unknown. What is uh, you can or what is known, for instance, in Parkinson's disease, that certain cells in the substantia nigra are um, degenerated, and this causes a tremor. But why are those cells degenerated? What really makes the trembling start, and what makes it uh, unfortunately not stopping? So. Uh, what makes it stop is not the <laughs> correct way of saying it. So what makes it start? Why are people trembling? 
And this is, although so many people are infected, unknown. The only information we have at the moment are from uh, computer models or from uh, animal experiments, although you have to induce tremor in animals, so there are no real trembling animals out there, but you have certain drugs where you can cause symptoms like the ones in Parkinson's disease to learn what's uh, going on in brain structures by doing surgery afterwards or checking it. On the other hand, tremor is a very nice, and this is now from a time series analysis point of view, um, from time series point of view, tremor is a very nice disease. Because when a patient is trembling, is not just trembling once or twice a day, like for instance in epilepsy, another application we have, where a seizure occurs, hopefully not too often, so once, twice a day, a year, a month, this is rather rare cases, you can't really learn a lot out of this not so often occurring events, but tremor is a long-lasting disease, so if you have the tremor and you are trembling, then you are doing this 24 hours a day. So in principle, you could have a continuous recording of this tremor data. In essential tremor, the patients are also able to activate tremor and disactivate uh, or inactivate tremor by just uh, out stretching the hand out so they can really start the trembling and stop it. So you have a really nice situation where you can control from a time series point of view what's going on. And this is why we are interested in tremor so much. On the one hand, to help the patients. On the other hand, it's a nice set of data where you have continuous recordings of. How do we approach tremor and how do we analyze tremor data? And this is what I now call good old spectral analysis. Um, when I started in 2000, this was rather new for me and uh, I wouldn't have used the term good old because I had no clue what's going on there and I don't want to bother you with all the details. So if you're not an expert in spectral analysis, uh, I don't want to bother you with all the mathematics. But the message at the end is that spectral analysis allows you to infer certain oscillatory properties in your signals. So is it an oscillatory signal? Is it a signal which consists of almost all frequencies? Is there a predominant frequency in this uh, signal? And so on and so forth. And here, down there, you have the muscle activity from a patient suffering from essential tremor. So one of those patients who can activate the tremor. And you could easily tell, okay, I have one, two, three, four, five, five to six oscillations in a second. So the oscillation frequency is 5 to 6 hertz. And if you check it in the so-called spectrum, then you see a clear peak, I hope you can see it, uh, at 5 to 6 hertz, which tells you that this is the predominant frequency in your signal. You could have guessed this from the recording itself. You don't need any analysis techniques to tell this. But when you look at the EEG traces, so what the brain is doing, basically what the cortex is doing simultaneously, you can't easily tell what the important frequencies in this signal is. And if you do the spectral analysis, you see there are no really important signals, especially not at this 5 hertz. And the data are recorded from the sensory motor cortex, so precisely this area, which should be responsible if the cortex is involved at all, responsible for the trembling of your hand. And here you see a rather flat spectrum, so you wouldn't say there is a predominant frequency, especially not the 5 hertz frequency, as I said. So, but still, it might be possible that uh, one of these two is influencing this signal. And to show you that this is really possible, you go to uh, cross-spectral analysis, so in this case, to be precise, coherence analysis, and this does not tell you that there is a certain frequency content, but it tells you 
how strong the interactions between two signals are. And this can be interpreted in terms of a level of percentage. So 0.8 means 80%. You could predict 80% of one signal knowing what's going on in the other signal. And here you have such a peak at the tremor frequency of 5 Hz. And this is C4. This was this boring channel uh, before with this rather flat spectrum. But from this channel, if you provide me with this information, I could provide you with 90% of the information of this EEG <coughs> signal, of this muscle activity. This other boring signal is not at all predictive about what's going on in the EMG. It's below this horizontal line, which is the significance level, which basically tells you that there is no interaction uh, between the electrode C4, C4, uh, C3 and the EMG. And if I now more additionally provide you with the information that the EMG from the left excenter, so the left hand, the left uh, muscle which is responsible for doing this, and uh, C4, which is on the right side of the cortex. Um, this is a rather natural result or a result which you would expect because the right side of your brain is responsible on what's going on on the left uh, periphery and the left side of the brain is responsible for what your right hand is doing. And here you see, yes, the right side of the brain is responsible for the tremor on the left side or the tremor is reporting to the brain that it's currently trembling. This can't be told by this analysis. And C3, so from the left side, there's no signal reflected in the EMG from the left EEG, which you would also expect. But these are still important results, I would say. But this is from a data analysis point of view and from a recording point of view rather old results. We know this for uh, several decades now that those techniques are available and this is basically with EEG signals nowadays we are record, able to record uh, with a much higher spatial and temporal resolution and what we are usually faced with at the moment is that we have still the muscle activity but this is now depth electrodes recording signals from deep brain structures and in this case this little area here is the subthalamic nucleus so we can record from this area during brain surgery so these are patients who underwent surgery uh, to place an electrode a deep brain stimulation electrode at the end which uh, sh should abolish the um, tremor at all so by stimulating you get rid of your tremor you can and if you see the videos they can then use their hands and arms as usual persons can and from those we have the recordings and here you see typical recordings from these channels here and there you see these are completely different characteristic these are spiky signals this is really the spiking of the individual neurons so the unitary events from, from the neurons and you have additionally the EMG signal which is not plotted here but the main information is that you have a lot of those channels and if we would do the coherence analysis, this would have certain drawbacks. And to explain you what those drawbacks are, I leave the field of time series analysis for quite some time and switch to a completely different topic. And this is a typical scenario uh, where you have, or where you're counting numbers, so of random variables, basically. And here you have the information of an early death of the patient. It's nothing to do with tremor and the information whether he died early or not. And on the other hand, you have the medical consultation, so basically how often you went to a doctor, he could do it frequently or infrequently. 
And what you see here is if a patient dies early, then in 25 of 45 cases, he visited the doctor rather frequently, which is more than 50% of the cases. And in, uh, if he didn't die early, then he visited the doctor uh, less frequently. So the conclusion from this is simple. If you visit the doctor more often, it's more likely that you die early. I gave this talk in front of, uh, or not this talk, but this slide was, is from a talk which I uh, gave in front of uh, physicians, and I wouldn't have dared to stop there, I have to admit. And the, basically, this is not the truth, because the information looks completely different if you take into account another factor. And this other factor is the severity of the disease. You can have a mild disease or a really severe disease. And what you can see here is if the severity of the disease is rather high, you naturally visit the doctor more often. And this is irrespective of whether you die early or not. So you have a frequent visit uh, for a doctor here, and if you have only a mild disease, then you likely visit the doctor less frequently. And so what you can do is you can explain the entire correlation you had between visiting the doctor and dying early by just taking into account the severity of the disease. And this is a, a typical scenario of a multivariate analysis. If you just use bivariate information and ask are those two correlated, then you get a certain answer. But this does not necessarily mean that you have a causal interaction, that you can learn something from this because it could be influenced by a uh, third factor which you didn't take into account. You might now say uh, I could uh, graphically represent this before I continue with the other information. So you have the consultation, you have the early death of the patient. Again, you might now hypothesize which is responsible for this, which in this case the consultation might be responsible for the early death of the patient. The early death of the patient shouldn't uh, influence the consultation, but both is not true as I explained. The truth is that the severity of the disease influences basically both. You might now argue um, this is a rare case, you made it up, uh, it's just about physicians and there are no other cases out there where this plays an important role and this is not true. And I have two other examples, I could continue the list with, with hundreds of examples where you have this. And uh, one funny thing is that in Germany people subdivided Germany in certain smaller areas and counted the number of babies and what uh, the result was that the higher the number of babies, the higher the number of storks. So the only question remains is, are the storks responsible for bringing the babies or is it vice versa? And another thing, this is from the, from the US, where uh, they counted the number of firefighters and the uh, material damage that was caused by a fire. And they found a high correlation. And a uh, guy responsible for this, so basically the mayor, uh, concluded we should send uh, a smaller number of firefighters to the fire just to ensure that there is not so much material damage. This is of course nonsense because here the information is how big the fire is. By the way, for the stocks and the babies, the urbanization is an important factor just to complement this. But the same holds true for time series. Here we have a lot of time series. We record all of them simultaneously and we are interested in how they interact. And if we simply do the coherence analysis, we can't tell whether there is a third factor which we didn't take into account which is influencing the other two. But still this might be important 
because if there is some important step in between, some important process in between, which is mediating all the information, we should know it because the interpretations at the end about the disease can be entirely different, dependent on the results. So we need such a technique which allows us to tell is there a commonly influencing third factor um, from measured time series. And this is possible. And in trying to give you the idea how this works, um, I concentrate only on a three-dimensional case. It works in n dimensions, but here let me restrict first to three dimensions. So you have three processes, and in this case you might be interested, is there a direct interaction between process one and two? What you simply could do is you can subtract process three from process one and two. This subtraction is not the usual subtraction you might now think of, so just subtracting the signals. This won't work. What you basically subtract is the entire information you have from X3 onto X1 and X2. And now imagine, like with the um, severity of the disease, if the information about the severity of the disease would allow you to predict how often, how frequent the patient uh, visits a doctor and on the other hand, how likely is it to die? You have a lot of information and then you can tell there is no direct interaction between the severity of uh, the medical consultation and the early death of the patient. This is the same here. If I have a lot of information from X3 about X1, if I can fully predict what's going on in X1 by knowing what's going on in X3, then these two shouldn't be linked. They shouldn't be interacting directly. And this is true. If basically nothing is left, then you could easily tell there is no interaction because if nothing is left, then nothing is not correlated to anything else. So there is no correlation, basically, which tells you they are not interacting. And if you don't get any information from X3 about X1, X1 remains the same. There is no additional information I can take into account. So if these two are linked by a bivariate analysis, they will also be linked by a multivariate analysis telling you that they are interacting directly. This information, to be more precise, is in most of the studies a linear filter, which tells you you try to use all the instance and time of your process X3, of your recordings of the process X3, use optimal filters here which need to be estimated, which are not known in advance, and then you try to really, this is the usual minus sign, you subtract this information. And if you can predict almost everything, then the only thing which is left is pure noise, and pure noise is uncorrelated to any other process. And this can be used here. And the bad news or the drawback of this technique is you have to come up with the best estimate, so the best coefficients here you can ever think of, and this is a rather challenging thing, but the good news is in the frequency domain you don't have to do it. In the frequency domain the subtraction looks like this, and this is the cross spectrum, so again this plot which tells you are these two interacting, and this is the subtraction, and as you see here it's basically containing the information of the cross spectrum, so is X interacting with Z and Z interacting with Y. If yes, you have something to subtract. If no, you can't subtract anything. This is just the partial coherence, the measure you use at the end, which is the normalized version of this. And this is even not the best you can get, uh, because here you would have to try all possible combinations, would be again an enormous amount of work if you have an n-dimensional system. So imagine you record from 100 processes and you want to tell is one 
influencing two if I know three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and so on. And what you simply can do is you can arrange all the spectra and the cross spectra in a matrix. And if you invert this matrix and normalize it appropriately, what you end up with is partial coherence. And now to show you forget about the mathematics to show you that this really works. I have a real-world example here. This is from a tremor recording from the one I've shown below, uh, before. So you have the information of the neurons. These are in this case four neurons and you have the additional information from the muscles. So this is neurons from the subthalamic nucleus. This is the information from the muscle from the hand which is trembling and as you can see from this plot, uh, let's for simplicity, call these processes 1 to 5. You can see from this plot that there are certain interactions. So there is a peak above the significance level at the tremor frequency, which tells you that this neuron is influencing this one. Process 1 is influencing process 3. On the other hand, you have also an uh, influence between 1 and 4, because this one is above the significance level. And you would have another one. No. no you would have another one between 1 and 5. And if I go through all these sub-figures and count those uh, where I found a significant connection, bivariate connection, you see that almost all process processes are linked to the others. But this, as I said, does not necessarily mean that they are directly linked. It could be mediated by some other processes. And to check for this, we have this partial coherence analysis which takes into account the information of all the other processes. And if you do it here, you see that interactions between processes can remain. This is neighboring neurons, uh, or likely neighboring neurons. There you see it remains, so they are still interacting, although I took into account all the other information, so there is a direct interaction between these two neurons. The same holds for other processes as well, and if you now simplify this picture, then you see it's a pure chain here. You had a lot of connection, you had an entirely or almost entirely connected network, but the truth is that there are only very few edges between the nodes, very few connections, it's just a linear uh, graph, so the minimal number of, minimum of number of connections you need is used here to explain your result you had from a bivariate analysis. But still, there's a big question which remains, and this is, what about the direction of information flow? I now know that two processes are interacting and I know that they are interacting directly or indirectly but I can't tell which of the process causes the other. So in the tremor example, is it the cortex that imposes its oscillatory behavior onto the muscle or is it the feedback signal from the muscle telling the cortex I'm currently trembling? And of course, it makes a big difference whether you just have uh, feedback from the muscle or whether you could claim the cortex is really imposing its oscillatory behavior on the muscles. So what we want, basically, is arrows to our edges. Yeah, we want to know which is driving which. And this is also possible, but not by taking into account the information of the other process. But first step is you subtract everything you know about the own past of the process. So you take a process, you subtract everything about the time you are now, uh, you know from the past of this process. And in doing so, you are left with something. This is what you can't predict 
out of their own past. And now, if you can use the information of process X1 and explain more about process X2, then using its own past, then you have a direct information flow from X1 onto X2. Because you can explain more, there must be uh, causal information um, about X2 given X1. The same holds, of course, in the other direction. If the past of X2 allows you to have more or gain more knowledge about X1 than just using the past of X1, uh, then you have a direct edge in this direction. And, of course, you can have a mutually interacting system where you can explain both using the past of the other process. And this can also be done mathematically and there are many ways you might think of how to do it. We use so-called autoregressive processes which take explicitly into account the past and try to predict the future. And this is not a univariate system, it's a multivariate system, more dimensional system. There you have really AI is an entire matrix and there on the diagonal it provides you with the information what happens uh, in your own past, how likely the information can be used to predict the current state and the off-diagonal elements tell you uh, how much one process is influencing another one. So in this case it is process W influencing process V and you then get more information if this is non-zero or uh, if it's zero you know you don't get any further information about this. And since it's only considering the values of the past, it's really a causal model. It's not allowing uh, instantaneous events or future events changing your uh, prediction for, uh, at time t. It's only the past events. And this is what you would understand uh, when talking about causality, because a causal interaction should first have the cause and then the effect and not vice versa. And this epsilon at the end simply means everything I cannot explain. And this might be noise or might be unobserved components or caused by whatever uh, where I have no information about this. Again, if you do this, you have to consider certain time steps into the past. The P previous cases are considered here. If P is 100, this means you look 100 time steps into the past. Uh, this means you have to evaluate 100 of those matrices and check 100 of those elements. This would be again a lot of work to do and you have to apply a lot of statistical tests to check whether it's zero or non-zero. This is also uh, something we don't do. What you can do is you can use this information and consider it in the frequency domain. So it's here just Fourier transformed into the frequency domain and then you get a frequency based measure between 0 and 1. In this case it's called the directed transfer function developed by Professor Blinowska from Warsaw uh, also I think 10 years. Uh, might now be 15 years ago, and uh, she suggested this direct transfer function as a measure for direct causal influence. This was improved, I would say, by the partial directed coherence in 2001 by Bakala and Samishima, who used a slightly different version, but the advantage of this slightly different version is that you really can tell the difference between direct and indirect interactions and the direction of information flow. For the direct transfer function, you can't distinguish direct and indirect inf uh, interactions. To show you how these techniques work in action, this is a simulated 
uh, data sets so we know the result. This graph down here is the true graph and this is what we got from the analysis. And now let's check. So in this case the direct information flow from x2 to x1 is non-zero. So yes there is or there was as, uh, in the simulation uh, the connection from x, a causal connection from x2 to x1. You can go on and check x4 to x2. This is also a direct uh, edge down here which means x4 is influencing x2 and if you check for x4 influencing x1 you don't find an interaction. This means you don't have a direct interaction. Of course using this process x2 x4 is influencing x1 so if you modify x4 in a certain way so just stimulating it or putting some extra information onto this channel or modifying it slightly you will find that x1 is changing accordingly but this is not because of a direct edge this is just because everything is mediated by x2 so basically what you do you change x4 which changes x2 which in turn changes x1 and this is what the analysis tells you uh, and you could go on with all the others and they will produce all the other edges but this is uh, an autoregressive process we used here for the simulation you might now argue the, pro uh, the, the entire theory was developed for autoregressive processes and this is definitely not what we observed in the world out there so a Parkinson patient is or the signals you record from Parkinsonian patients is typically not an autoregressive process. So there might be other processes, especially nonlinear processes, where this linear technique is not supposed to work. So we tried it out on, in this case, a nonlinear system. You see a clear peak in the frequency domain with a highly oscillatory system. It's also a nonlinear system. And here you see all the edges, all the directed information flows, and still it works, you would end up with this graph. So to prove it a little bit, you here have a causal connections, causal connection from X2 onto X4 and vice versa, which is X4 onto X2, X2 onto X4. So you really have this uh, direct, mutually coupled uh, oscillators here. There are also others, so you don't have a direct influence from X1 onto X2. This is also true, it's only the direct interaction from X2 onto X1. Yes, this can be found up there and this is the result. By the way, you here have again a significance level which tells you is this really a significant effect or is it just a correlation effect you get by chance. If you summarize different techniques and we tested them under various conditions, so direct versus indirect connections, nonlinear, linear cases, uh, cases where you have uh, time dependent influences, I will come to this point in a few seconds. If you don't have influences and then you plot the results, you see that PDC, partial directed coherence, has always a plus, which means that it is principle able to do everything. It can distinguish direct indirect interactions, can tell you the direction of information flow, can cope with nonlinear systems and if there is no interaction it would not claim that there is one and others have certain drawbacks under certain conditions. But now comes the big but and this is related to the significance level. 
which I mentioned, this red line, and maybe I go back if that's possible, you see that it's almost a horizontal line. When you recall what the significance level for the uh, coherence was, it was just a horizontal line, which means you have the same significance level for all frequencies. Here you have, and I hope you can see it, a frequency dependent significance level. In this case, it's no problem, but there are other cases where this significance level really has also has peaks. And the drawback is that from this significance level, where you can see that it's really frequency dependent, you can't learn anything about the strength of the information flow, so the strength of the coupling. Is it a strong coupling or a weak coupling? If you have a horizontal line as a significance level, if you know that higher values always correspond to a higher uh, strengths of coupling, this would be nice. For a partial directed coherence you can tell there is an interaction, but you can't really tell is it a strong interaction or is it a rather weak interaction you have. And this is basically due to the fact that this significance level is frequency dependent. And uh, it depends on the number of influenced or influencing processes by this denominator, which is again arbitrarily chosen. There's no reason to do it. And so we thought, hmm, we can't tell the strength. And uh, it's frequency dependent, so it's at least two drawbacks which we don't like. And so we suggested a slightly modified version of it, which is then called renormalized partial directed coherence. Again, I want, don't want to bother you with all the details. I will show an example in a second. But here you have a slightly modified, you see again this A matrix, which was used in the partial directed coherence here in a slightly modified way. And this measure, the renormalized partial directed coherence, is now uh, not, or is equipped with a significance level which is not frequency dependent and allows you to really assess the strength of the information flow. And to show you that this works, this is now an example of a network of four neurons. Again, a simulated network, so we know the results. And what you see here is dependent on frequency, how the neurons interact. And this was a rather simple scenario. You basically had a Poisson process for the neurons. So each point in time had the same likelihood to uh, be a point where an action potential was generated. And the connection was made in a way that once one of the neurons fired, the probability for another neuron to fire was increased. So this is how we did the interaction here. And it was the case that one and two, these two neurons are mutually coupled. So increase, uh, firing of process two increased the likelihood for one to fire and vice versa. Three was influencing one. So once three fired, the probability for one to fire was increased. This is not true for the opposite direction. And from two to four, it was if two fired, then it was more likely for process or neuron four to fire. This is again a simulated system. I can tell you this is the truth. So this is basically what we wanted to have at the end because this is what, what we simulated in the first place. Um, but what happens in another application? So this is again a nonlinear example where we also know what's going on. This is not a linear system. This is a highly nonlinear system. It's called Van der Poel oscillators, coupled Van der Poel oscillators. And there you see again, you have the significance level. As I said, it's now a horizontal line. It's no longer frequency dependent. You find certain interactions. So process three or oscillator three is influencing oscillator one. One and two are again mutually coupled. And two and four, there's a direct connection from two onto four. So you basically have the same scenario with the neurons, but here for an entirely different system. 
But this does not tell you that it's really able to measure the strength of coupling. And to illustrate this, we varied the coupling strength between the oscillators. And on the x-axis, it's an increasing coupling strength. On the y-axis, you find the results of the RPDC analysis, the renormalized partial directed coherence analysis. And you see it's more or less, it's just very few realizations. It's more or less a linear increase, might be slightly nonlinear, I don't know. But it's really strongly correlated the RPDC value to the strength of the coupling, which tells you that you really can tell if it is strong coupling or weak coupling. But now enough of simulations. Let's get back to the tremor example. And this is, uh, again, one of those data sets where you had this tremor in Parkinsonian disease, where we had the recording from the subthalamic nucleus. These are now two neurons from the subthalamic nucleus and simultaneously recorded the EMG. And what you see here is that you have a feedback from the EMG to the neurons. Here it might be slightly non-significant, might be significant, I don't know. I would have to check it with the computer whether this is a significant value. But here you definitely have a significant uh, effect, which means that you get some of the information of the EEG, EMG channel also in the subthalamic nucleus. There must be some pathway which allows the EMG to tell the brain what's going on, likely using the sensory cortex. And this is more important, you also have an information flow from the neurons at the tremor frequency to the EMG. I don't claim that it's a direct information flow. So it might be mediated by the cortex. The cortex can't be taken into account here because unfortunately we do not know what the cortex is doing because we couldn't measure it in this example. But in principle, if we could measure the cortex, we could tell whether it's mediated by the cortex or not. But here you see that the neurons of the subthalamic nucleus are responsible, at least to some extent, to what's going on in the EMG. So there is a causal interaction from the neurons to the EMG. And as I said, there's also feedback. In this case, the neurons seem to be rather far apart because those two are not mutually interacting. So I don't know, it might be neurons from different positions in the subthalamic nucleus. I have to check this, why those two are not directly talking to each other, which you would expect if they are in nearby neurons. Another problem which is unaddressed so far, which is likely important for tremor research, is that a tremor, although at the beginning I said it's a very nice signal because it continues for weeks, if you wish, you know, um, it is non-stationary in principle, slightly non-stationary, which means that you investigate a Parkinson uh, disease patient and you measure the tremor, the amplitude changes over time. So there are some epochs in time where the tremor is rather strong and others where the amplitude is rather low. And also patients are able to modify it slightly. So usually when patients went to a physician and they are uh, cured or treated by this physician, they want their tremor to improve. So they really doing everything they could to decrease the amplitude and telling, hey, I do very good, don't I? And um, this is everything, uh, all the, those things influence your signals and the strengths of your uh, signals. And of course, you want to uh, take into consideration you want to uh, account for those changes and this is done using this rather complicated models but it is not so complicated uh, if you go through the individual equations. This is just the observation. 
which means if this Z matrix is not there, which is usually the case, then you measure X, but it's contaminated with some observation noise. This is what you always have when you do measurements. You have your signals you're interested in contaminated with observation noise, and this is basically what we observed. Then you again have the dynamics of the process, of the non-contaminated uh, process, so the underlying process, and another equation, and this equation, forget about the C for a while, tells you that the parameters which occur in your model are not supposed to change. This is a simple equation if Xi wouldn't be there. Uh, a at time t minus 1 is A at time t, which means if the parameters are now 0.5, then they it will be 0.5 in the next step. But now let's turn on this Xi. This allows you to slightly change the parameters in each uh, step in time. So it's not allowing you to do rapid changes. So it's not from 0 to 100 in just one instant in time. This is allowing for moderate changes in the parameters. And in doing this you can capture non-stationary signals. Because if you have a difference or a slight modification in the strength of the connection or in the strength of the amplitude of one signal which would also be part of this model, then you could account for this or take this into account by modifying this parameter values. And to show you that this really works, um, let me show you this at the first glance, again, rather complicated looking graph. And uh, on the x-axis now you have time. So we are interested in changes over time. So on the x-axis you have the time axis. On the uh, y-axis you have the frequency between 5 and 50 hertz. And warm colors mean high values for the interaction strengths, and the cold colors mean rather low values for the interaction strengths. And here you see a horizontal line, more or less horizontal line, with small interruptions. Um, this is the tremor signal. This is basically what I told you. The tremor is rather stationary. It remains at 5 hertz for almost all the time, but the amplitude might here at uh, after 20 se um, seconds of the recording, so this is 50 seconds after 20 seconds of the recording for one second be a little bit lower and then recover immediately. You see you have higher harmonics which tells you that it's a nonlinear system and now you're interested in the time dependent influences to again these four neurons. These are the signals for, of four neurons. And you again in the neurons see this 5 hertz component and this is not so stationary. Yeah, you see a lot of interruptions in this almost horizontal line. I hope you can see it. And uh, now the question is, what's going on there? And you can really, with using this analysis, tell that, for instance, the information flow from the muscle to this neuron is interrupted at certain points, so it becomes stronger and weaker. So it's not always the same. It is subject to certain changes. The neurons are interacting as you see here or here from time to time but not all the time so it seems that although those interactions are changing with time and uh, from this you can really tell what the time dependent structure of your graph is. You might now say hey if you have uh, this analysis technique why did you bother us with all the others? You start mentioning the partial directed coherence, the directed transfer function, the partial coherence and at the end you provide us with a technique which allows us to do time 
and frequency dependent analysis of data contaminated with observation noise. Why shouldn't I always use this? And the drawback of this technique is first, it is extremely time consuming to estimate it. And second, it makes, makes certain assumptions about the system. And one crucial assumption is that you have to have a lot of data and uh, almost uh, your model should fit your data rather well and so on and so forth. So the, the uh, amount of assumptions made by the individual techniques increasing with the ability to provide you with more information. So this is why we always suggest to use all the different techniques and not just one technique because if you take the most advanced one and we had this example or it happened to us when we analyzed the tremor data we were left with nothing you know, the result was I can't tell you anything but in using all the individual techniques and trying to learn always a bit more about the system really allows you to do inference on your system and then you really can tell is there starting with a certain frequency content in your signal up to is there a direct directed interaction between uh, two nodes of the networks, two neurons, a neuron and the EMG and so on and so forth. As I said, you have the possibility uh, to have uh, this analysis time dependent. But again, it only under uh, the assumption that you have very good data sets. So, to come back to the question, what is possible? Um, again, our example with the brain, the muscle, the muscle recording now plotted also. Here the electrodes as a schematic drawing in the subthalamic nucleus. This would be the substantia nigra. So sometimes it happens that we end up in the substantia nigra at the end. So we might have uh, data from different uh, brain regions. And we have the recordings from there. And now we ask who is interacting with uh, which of the other processes and this is marked by the different colors and basically what the colors here tell you is that there are a lot of interactions between the neurons. We could figure out at the end that it must be almost the entire subthalamic nucleus at 5 Hz, not at all the other frequencies but at 5 Hz, um, which is uh, related to tremor activities so it's not just one small part of the subthalamic nucleus, it's the entire, almost the entire nucleus and you find that there are interactions between the neurons and between the neurons and the EMG. You find uh, feedback from the muscle to the neurons using some pathway. Since we don't have recorded what's in between, I can't tell you whether it's the motor cortex, the sensory cortex, which is on the uh, signaling pathway from uh, the brain to the muscles or vice versa. But you can at least tell that the STN is strongly involved in what's going on in the periphery, what's going on in the tremor in the hand. And uh, in the future, we hopefully and likely will be able to have the recording of the EEG, simultaneous recording of the EEG, so we also know what's going on on the cortex, and then we can really tell whether it's, everything is mediated by the motor cortex or if it's just the feedback from the sensory cortex or if the signal is sent to both simultaneously and so on and so forth. This work, and this is where I want to stop, wouldn't have been possible without a lot of collaborators. On the one side, our clinical partners uh, who put a lot of effort in this because we are mainly physicists by training, so we have absolutely no clue about uh, tremor and the 
physiology underlying the human brain and what is possible and what is impossible and sometimes it happened that we had a very nice analysis technique, went to our partners and said we have solved this issue and they simply said this is impossible. Uh, the human can't, the human body can't do this. Yeah, it's, there is no pathway, for instance, from the left uh, brain hemisphere to the left side of the body. It's, it's not possible. And uh, of course, they are doing all the recordings. So Jan Vespa was the surgeon. Uh, Florian Amtage is the neurologist, uh, cooperating with them, doing all the recordings, deciding, yeah, we should take this recording, then inspecting the data. Is it really neurons we see there? And uh, is it physiological, meaningful, what we recorded, and so on and so forth. And on the other hand, the group, mainly led by Jens Timmer, my boss, um, working on the data analysis side, and uh, all of them put certain pieces into this uh, to make this project happen. And as I said, it's a long-lasting project. It started in 1990, and it's still continuing. So thank you very much for your attention. <laughs> Thank you very much for an excellent seminar, um, very informative and clearly a lot of work and many people have contributed and that came out very clearly. Can I ask any questions for Bjorn? Um, yeah, one question. Um, concerning your directed graphs, uh, if I understood correctly, it's not possible uh, if you have loops in the system to get uh, cause and relation effects or is there any possibility how you can dissect the information going from entity A to entity B and going back from entity B to entity A again? You can have loops. This is what I, uh, this is maybe not the best way to present it, but if you have this, and I need an example, I need an example, there's no example there. Here you have this bi-directional coupling. This could also be a loop. Maybe I should uh, use a drawing which makes it more obvious that it's... Well, uh, information you can then dissect the, the information flow from X to Y and from Y to Z, so it's separate, separate yeah. information. Yes, yeah, you have both information. And maybe another question, um, since we are uh, the team, I was wondering whether you applied this already to um, biochemical pathways. Uh, signal transduction networks of proteins? Not yet, and uh, the problem with this, uh, it would be nice to be able to do it, but usually you need a lot of data points to do it, so a lot of uh, measurements. And in the signaling pathway applications uh, Jens is also working on, uh, we have usually, I don't know, 10, 15 data points. And with so few data points, you would end up with nothing, so it wouldn't tell you anything. How many would you need about? Yeah, this is... Orders of magnitude difference between uh, time series analysis on this scale using spectral methods and what you would need to do in, which would be regression analysis, which is actually used here, as, as has been mm -hmm. seen. But in your case, there's so much more data, you'd have to work very hard to extract the information. I would guess, starting from 100 data points, 200, the more the better. And it's, of course, a crucial factor is the number of processes you're interested in, which is another problem uh, in many of the systems biology applications. If you have uh, a network consisting of, let's say, 15 vertices, and then you have only 10 or 20 or 100 data points, it won't work because you have so many parameters you have to estimate that it's basically impossible. But if you say, okay, I have only three processes and 100, 200 data points per channel, this might already be 
fine. Yeah, so this is always a trade-off of what you want to know is it just an interaction, if it's a direct interaction, and how many data points you could provide to address this question. Yeah. We have time for one more question. So it seems like this whole inference procedure for finding these uh, graphical models is predicated on the graphical models themselves being what's called Gaussian graphical model, where the interactions are linear and the innovation processes are all Gaussian. Is that correct? Partly, yes. So it was developed for all linear systems originally. And uh, as I said, we applied it to nonlinear systems to check how it's performing there. It seems to be working. We couldn't, of course, test all possible nonlinear systems, but at least for those we are tested, it worked fine. It works also for point processes. And in other theoretical work, we have extensions of these techniques for nonlinear systems. So if you're thinking about really synchronizing systems in a strict physical sense, that they are mutually interacting, or not necessarily mutually, but interacting oscillators which uh, have pulse coupling or whatever, then it is possible to use different techniques and partly alter these techniques to infer the network structure from those data sets too. So, so if, you, if you have a graphic model of this sort, which is Gaussian linear, then the inference problem is tractable, right? But once it's a nonlinear model or non-Gaussian, then just the inference of just estimating the marginals of, of such a thing, forgetting the data, just estimating the marginals becomes empty. That's a good point that maybe we'll catch up with in the discussions after. Maybe one last question. I just wondered whether there was any possibility to use things like mutual information or you know, some of these information theory concepts. I guess you would lose the frequency part of it, but it may work still for some of these nonlinear cases. I don't, I don't know whether people have tried that. Or it is possible. And uh, mutual information is, as you said, for instance, if you have a highly nonlinear system, this might be the, the technique you should use. The drawback of mutual information is that you basically have to estimate densities. And if you try to do density estimation in 5, 10, 11 dimensions to really be able to tell is it, if it's a direct or indirect connection, this is hardly possible. You would need an enormous amount of data, uh, millions, hundreds of millions, if not more, data points to get a reliable estimate. And is, uh, if you uh, want to go to five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten dimen dimensions, it wouldn't work at all. This is the drawback, otherwise it would be fine. So the nonlinear extensions is really an important issue here. But uh, as I said, there are two problems. If you use a non-parametric technique like mutual information, you have the problems of dimension estima uh, density estimations. And on the other hand, if you want to use another parametric model, there is a natural uh, way to write down a linear model, for instance, using autoregressive processes. But if you want to write down a generic nonlinear, the nonlinear model, this is hardly possible. So it might be possible to tailor it to certain situations. So thinking about a certain subset of nonlinear systems, so for instance, allowing for quadratic interaction terms or something like this, then you could extend this analysis techniques. But for the nonlinear systems, uh, I don't see any way how to do it. Okay, that's, that's great. I'm going to break off the questions now. Um, Brack, can we come up on that point at four o'clock when we meet. That'll be a good one. 
like to close by asking you again to thank Bjorn for coming and for presenting such an excellent seminar. Thanks for having me.